I think that's done, isn't it? Yeah. This podcast was recorded remotely and contains adult themes and language. Hello and welcome to TV DNA. It's our season nine, and we're starting with Better Call Saul, season six. My name is Adam Hemming, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, guilty of career-ending prosecutorial misconduct. It's Neil Shepek. <laughs> I can't talk a lot about that, but I'm so happy the Slipping Jimmy is back in my life. And he is living a life outside his life. It's our prepubescent intern, Damien Cooper. Whatever happens next, it's not going to go down the way you think it is. I can almost be certain of that when it comes to any single recording of the TV DNA podcast. <laughs> we are going to be talking about the first two episodes of Better Call Saul Season 6, entitled Wine and Roses and Stick and Carrot. So if you haven't seen those first two episodes of Better Call Saul, there will be spoilers ahead. So check the podcast notes for the time codes for when you can skip forward to to hear us talking about other TV shows. Yeah, and if you don't like wine or carrots, um, this isn't the podcast for you. Or breadsticks. (laughs) It's not wine and bread, is it? It's wine and roses. So the breadstick thing. That made no sense. There's a quote about give me wine and give me bread and something, and, and it has something to do with roses as well. There's a pub in Clapham that's really close to me called the Bread and Roses, and it's a socialist phrase, so it does exist. I'm, I'm not sure it's connected with one of the titles. I used to work there. They used to have the slogan painted on the wall. Yeah, they still do. Yeah. They're a theatre now. I know, yeah. We were one of the first people to do a show in there. Anyway, let's crack on with Better Call Saul. So we're going to talk about all of the different stories and the opening sequence, but do you want to give any initial thoughts or what it means to you to have Better Call Saul back on your screen? It's increíble, muy estatico, that it is back. I'm not sure estatico is actually a Spanish word, so excuse me. I'm glad we put it back, man. It's awesome. Bit slow, but that's not a bad thing. I thought the opening to this final season was just amazing. The cinematography was outstanding. I had to watch it a couple of times because I really wanted to appreciate everything I was watching. And I still think that I missed a whole load of Easter eggs that were no doubt part of that opening sequence. I think more so the first episode than the second. The cinematography is absolutely amazing. The DOP deserves an Oscar for what he's done. Absolutely. And we'll come up to that opening sequence very shortly I just want to say that the writing of this it's so densely packed and nothing is there without cause or reason incredible characters really brilliant writing also the narrative isn't just in the script it is so much in the visual that's what really stood out to me watching it was just how much the story was being told and we'll get on to episode two as as we go through the various storylines but there was stuff in episode two where nothing was shown, but everything was said. Every single department did an amazing job. Spectacle Saul seasons normally open with a black and white scene showing us the life of Gene Takovich, the persona that Jimmy slash Saul takes on post Breaking Bad. It's a flash forward, if you like. And this season, 
didn't open with that. Instead, what we got was a black and white scene of some ties falling and then eventually those ties becoming more colourful. And that opened out to a really extended sequence of people clearing out this very fancy residence, which we subsequently learned was Saul Goodman's house. Was it though? Because what I got from that is that it was a slightly absurd, and I love this, I absolutely love this, particularly with it going from black and white into colour, and then all the various parts of Soul's life that was basically being removed by these bailiffs. For me, the question in my head about is this real or is this some sort of dream was answered later on where we saw the actual residence, which was much more realistic and down to earth. And I think it was a very colourful and enjoyable and extravagant expression of Jimmy losing his his identity, I guess, well, his identity as soul. Yeah, I think that part of it, as you said, is just beautifully shot. But the bits for me where I was like, oh, yeah, OK. Yeah, I'm totally on board with this and less disappointed that we had no Gene Tagovich was when we saw <laughs> face down <laughs> the saw cut out in the pool and then that person just bring it and stand him up in the dumpster. That for me was like, oh, chef's kiss. And I wonder if that is maybe uh, a little bit of a clue as to what might happen to Jimmy slash Saul slash Gene, how he may meet his end in the water. I Well, I don't think he's going to meet his end in the water, but I do think it was an example of how he's going to lose everything. And we already know that. We've already seen these black and white future scenes. So we already know that he loses everything. And I don't think for a second he has an apartment as luxurious as what was portrayed in that opening scene. But I do think it was how they were setting up the fact that he loses everything, which isn't really anything new for us. I didn't think it was a dream sequence. I thought it was genuinely Saul Goodman's place of residence. It felt like he had amassed great wealth through his cartel connections and had spent it on all of this stuff. Let's talk through some of the stuff that we saw there. So the first confirmation for me that this was intended to be, whether it's a dream sequence or not, where Saul Goodman lived, was the medication that was lined up with Saul Goodman's name on, including a large box of Viagra. There was the golden toilet in the golden bathroom. There was the pink thong. Don't forget the pink thong. Yeah, the pink thong was on the taps of the bath, wasn't it? We saw a copy of HG Wells' Time Machine, which we do see again later on in, I think, episode two. And I wondered whether either of you could remember whether the Time Machine book had featured before with Jimmy or Saul, if it's not immediately striking a recollection. I want to come back to that later on. We saw a Cadillac with the Lawyer Up license plate on it, which again is referenced later on in the Jimmy Kim scene. Uh, there was a bulletproof vest, the cutout of Saul we've already mentioned. There was a bag of bingo balls, 
being carried out, which was obviously a callback to his Sandpiper bingo scheme. There was also a box with lots of bits in with some balls with the CC Mobile logo on, which I thought was referencing his mobile salesperson section. I'm certain I've missed the whole load of Easter eggs here. So please, please do message in with any Easter eggs that you've seen. I definitely caught the bingo balls. It wasn't as painful as it sounds, but anything that you've heard of or you've noticed, please let us know. One thing that caught my eye that was out of place in all of the fancy suits and shirts was a baseball cap, which I think is from the sort of film crew that he's used. I think there's a scene early on where he steals one of their baseball caps and wears that as if he's like the guy in charge. But it all ends with this bureau being lifted onto this van and something falls off the Bureau. I admittedly googled what this was afterwards because it didn't automatically strike any any memories for me. But Damien's reacting as if he knew exactly what it was when it came off the Bureau. Well, it's the top, the stopper, as it were, from the expensive bottle of tequila. Ah, that suddenly made sense because I couldn't work out what it was and it got a lot of attention. And that's, of course, the memento from that first time Kim gets involved in one of the cons with... Saul, right? She keeps that as she takes that from the table as whatever she is. Is she the 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 grandchild of some rich Central Europeans or or whatever the con is? And she keeps that. So, and I think maybe they have another bottle again. So I don't know if that's necessarily Kim's one or if he's secured one from a different bottle. I was quite moved by that. In well, what you call that part of the road? I don't know, but all that water just flowing down i thought we were going to see it fall down the drains get swept away so maybe that's a positive thing that it didn't get swept away i think it's a reminder of the relationship between jimmy and kim i think it's the final episode the last series where he says am i bad for you to him and i wonder if what it is that kim's actually good for him because every time kim wants to push it further he gets worried and tries to pull it back so I wonder if maybe because Kim's not in the picture, that is why Saul has become so gaudy and gauche and why he lives in this kind of pseudo Greco-Roman villa. When I did my little Google rabbit hole search for this bottle top and what it was, one of the theories was that this was the only piece of evidence that Kim may have been in that residence. And the fact that, Damo, you said it was Kim's souvenir adds weight to that a little bit. It's the fictional bottle of tequila called Zephiro Aneo. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. They couldn't get a sponsorship from a tequila company because the first time it's used in Breaking Bad is when Gus poisons the Don Eladio and, and loads of people. So after drinking it, lots of people end up dead. And, and no tequila company really wanted that to be uh, how their their brand was seen. So they created this fictional bottle of tequila. And Zephiro translates as sapphire, which is meant to reference Walter White's blue meth. And Aneo is just a reference to the fact that it's matured over at least a year. And the other important bit about it is the reason why it became such a big thing for them is that in that hotel, the shot was something ridiculous, like some ridiculously expensive amount. And because Kim has come from no money whatsoever, that was particularly strong in her grabbing her attention, as well as obviously Saul, but he has a slightly more stable background. 
financially growing up. I think there is another point where Saul buys a bottle of it and wants to drink it with Kim and ends up drinking it with the receptionist instead. Uh, but I can't remember the exact circumstances of that. I think you're right. I think the key thing is that Kim keeps that bottle top as a souvenir of that moment. Anything else you wanted to pick up on from the opening sequence? It reminded me of the when all the ties were coming in of that Indiana Jones scene with all the snakes. And I was like, ties? Why did it have to be ties? <laughs> the ties were perfect, as were the suits. I mean, it was so beautifully done. Just the whole shot. I mean, it was, for me, it was Oscar worthy um, what the DOP was doing. I want to discuss the lap of Gene Takovich. Because that, for me, was gutting. So as we were about to start the first episode, I said, oh, shit, I haven't rewatched any of the Gene Takovich moments. Oh, man. Do I quickly now scramble through YouTube wherever? And I thought, oh, fuck it. I'll just get onto it. As great as it is, I'm disappointed we didn't see Gene. So I wonder, are we going to end this first half with a Gene scene and then start the second half with the Gene scene? Or are we just not going to see anything Gene until the very end? I'm really hoping we get Neil's orgasmic suggestion of a whole black and white Gene Takovich episode. Let's move on then. But as Neil said earlier, if you spotted anything in that opening sequence that we've missed, please, please, please do contact us and let us know what you spotted. And if you've got the bingo balls as well, let us know. We've got a helpline. So <laughs> we get a short scene of Nacho on the run and a, a phone conversation with Mike. But I want to focus first on Lalo's storyline, because I think this is really key for the start of this season and what happens with Lalo. So he arrives at his neighbours, uh, that's called Sylvia and Matteo. We learn yeah. that he's helped them in the past. She makes him a cup of coffee. And Matteo arrives in, he's got this big ZZ top beard. He's never heard of ZZ Top. And Sylvia makes him shave it all off. But Lalo says, make sure you keep the tash. Yeah, and importantly, Lalo also sorted out his dental work, which is later references the dental all kind of lined up. Basically, Lalo framed him as being him dead. He faked his own death. And so apart from Hector, by the end of episode two, everyone thinks he's dead. Yeah, this massively confused me during the episode. I had to go back and rewatch it and, and work out what had happened. We see Lalo unhooking these scissors. And I was like, oh, he doesn't trust these people. It becomes clear that the Salamanca twins, when they visit Lalo, Lalo's ranch, while the, the Federales are there going through everything, we see the padlock that Nacho jimmied. We see the bottle of booze that they've been drinking from at the end of the previous season. And then we see this burnt man and I was like, oh, do they think this burnt man is is Lalo? I think it was when, when Gus gets told in a later scene that the dental records matched. Then I was like, ah, yeah, Lalo had helped this guy sort out his teeth. And so he's obviously taken those dental records and replaced his own with, with Matteo's dental records. I wasn't as confused. For me, it was really obvious that that's what Lalo was setting up. And I thought, again, I'm coming back to cinema photography and telling a story or narrative without using script, that you knew what was going on. I mean, that's how I felt anyway. 
is that when he murdered the woman and then when he murdered the guy in the shower who looked very like him and he got him to shave his beard to look like him, you saw nothing, but you knew everything. And I thought it was amazing. I thought it was absolutely amazing storytelling. I think that his visit to them is twofold. So it's not only that, he's bleeding and he needs fixing up. So he also goes there knowing that there's some somewhere that he can be fixed up. But in turn, by being there, neither of them can see him alive. Irregardless of the dental stuff, he needs to get patched up and they can't be allowed to live. They have to go. So, I mean, I think it's Absolutely. all of that going on. Like it's, yeah. it's such a savvy, smart move from Lalo to just get all of that taken care of quickly and efficiently and then brutally clean house. It really is, and it shows what a selfish he is. Well, this is why I think the writing is so good, exactly for those reasons that you, that you said, Neil, and that when we talked in our preview episode, like sometimes they don't spoon-feed you this stuff. Sometimes it does take you, you have to work for it, and sometimes you do have to catch up on those those bits and pieces. So in that season five, we'd seen him being really friendly and kind to the people that were around, the people in his hacienda, or his, his, his compound. So when he was there with his neighbours, I was like, oh, he's having a nice cup of coffee and he's getting fixed up. And, the rest of it. and then he unhooked the scissors and I was like, Rrr? when it all made sense, it's just so incredibly satisfying when all those jigsaw pieces sort of fit together. And I really enjoy the fact that I have to work for all of that stuff. The clue is in Don Juan telling Gus in the very next scene that Lalo is dead. All of the clues are there and it's all laid out for you to sort of work it all out. It really is so clever, whether it's the script or whether it's just the, the visuals. It, it's such a clever series. I think it's possibly one of the best TV series that I've watched in the last decade. So the next time we see Lalo, he is attempting to cross the border in the same way that earlier on in the episode, Mike has told Nacho that he would get him out of Mexico. But before Lalo gets into this truck, which has got hay all the way around it, uh, he calls Uncle Hector and tells him that he knows it was the chicken man who attempted to assassinate him. Hector asks for proof by spelling it out using his bell. Lalo says he works out where he can get it and tells Hector that he'll see him soon. And then he doesn't go north, which no. I find really interesting. So just to finish that bit off, he tells the coyotes, the people who are across, pe people across the border, that he's changed his mind. He then kills them and gets uh, and gives all the money back to the, the other people who were trying to cross. And yeah, as you say, Neil, he returns south. Where do you think he's off to? Oof, um, I, I think that's something for us to look forward to. Well, at the end of episode two, he's in Albuquerque, right? That's the car that follows Jim and Kimmy. Yeah, you can't see this, listeners, but both me and Adam put our hands in the air as in, well, we don't, we don't know this. We don't know that it's Lalo. We just know someone's following them. Uh, well, I posit it's Lalo in that car. And that he had he had some stuff to do with that we're gonna some business to do with that we'll find out about in retrospect. But he's he's back across the border because I don't know who else it could be unless we're about to meet someone new. Is it Hank? I doubt it because that's what it ends. Episode two yeah. ends with that car, so it has yeah. to be someone important that's following them. So that's my money is on Lalo. I think that's a good shout. 
I mean, the only other people I can think of that Lalo is going to see would be Don Eladio, but he's just created this whole ruse that he's dead and nobody knows that he's alive. The only other thing that's happening, obviously, is Nacho and the twins south of the border. Doesn't he drive away in their truck? Isn't it like a four-wheeled truck that he drives away in? And then isn't it a car that's following Kim and Saul? Obviously, he could have changed vehicles between Mexico and Albuquerque. It's a classic American car, isn't it? Which is what Lalo drives. I mean, so does Nacho, of course. So do many people. But I believe that it's a it's a kind of classic American car. Let's move on and talk about the Jimmy and Kim storyline, because then we'll get to that moment, which we've now already discussed. So... <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. No, I think it's fine. As you say, it'll never end up the way you expected it to. We we pick up with Kim and Saul where we left them. They're in the hotel room, aren't they? Kim finds out she's got 20 new pro bono cases from Grant, and they're going back to work, essentially. Saul's lending a suit for one of Kim's clients. They need cash for the cab, and they take that cash from the money that they earned, or Saul earned, from Lalo. So they are spending cartel money, I think, pretty much for the first time. But not just that. Kim goes into the bag and takes out the world's second best lawyer again, mug with the bullet through it. I have to say, what an amazing throw she has from next to the cab. And again, that is such amazing cinematography. I've got two questions. Had she known about the shooting or was that something she just tacitly acknowledged by taking that cut? So she saw the cut before in season five, but didn't say anything. So when she was giving Saul the oatmeal bath and then later on, he told her about all the crazy shit that happened and that he was shot at. But at no point did she then say, oh, so that explains the hole in the mug I bought you. So that was the moment she dealt with that. Didn't say anything, just picked it up, looked at it now. I don't know whether he noticed that she went straight for it or if it was something that she happened to see. But in that moment, it was dealt with and explained. And so she threw that. And I guess that lie, that symbolised the lie that he didn't tell her what had happened properly. And so she she literally threw that away and it was a clean slate. I really like the way you explain that in terms of her ending that lie. I wondered whether it was about getting rid of any evidence, but I don't I, I much prefer your explanation for it. Anyway, let's move on. So we then next see them coming into the El Camino dining room, which obviously is the name of the sequel movie, the Jesse Pinkman movie. But El Camino also translates as The Way. It's the name of the car that Jesse drives away in, which is where the movie gets its name from. But yeah, that's the translation for El Camino. Yes, it's historically got a religious connotation to it as well. A Camino. So there are many Caminos, but the most famous one is from uh, Pamplona to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. But I mean, basically, it's any journey. It's quite an epic, semi-religious tone to that as well, which I've quite enjoyed. What I loved was the fact that initially, after Kim's clients left, the, the actual plan wasn't shared with us as an audience. So we didn't know exactly what the plan was yeah this is the plan to take howard down and get the sandpiper settlement expedited um, which they talked about obviously at the end of season five we get a bit of conversation about kim's client's story he's a poor kid who's got caught up in a rich kids richie rich they call him liquor store robbery 
and he's having to take the fall for it, which I thought was really relevant to people just getting caught up in other people's scams or Kim is, she's the driving force behind this particular scam. Kim's encouraging Jimmy to go full Saul, you need to drive a flashier car, you need an office a cathedral of justice, which I thought was delicious. She brings up the idea about the, the Howard and Cliff con. Jimmy asks, are we doing this? And a, again, a really lo lovely moment of the waitress coming over and asking, have you decided? And Jimmy's like, not yet. <laughs> obviously paralleled beautifully with what they were just talking about. I think what was also beautiful about the whole thing was that they both got different motives for well, basically fucking Howard up. At the end of the day, they both wanted the same goal. For me, it's all about the clear discomfort that Jimmy has in, in where Kim is going, what she's prepared to do. But he clearly feels discomforted by the whole thing. But is that preparing us for the demise of Kim? I think it's an element of guilt for having let the genie out of the bottle with Kim because she's just suddenly balls to the wall, fuck this. I don't care, he's going down. And if anything, Souls had to temper that so that she doesn't go in too quickly. And then that conversation of them slowing it down, how long the con is, as we see in the second episode when they get to it. Oh, brilliant. But I guess something I was talking about in one of the earlier episodes, and, and we mentioned already this kind of Cagney and Lacey, Bonnie and Clyde, Thelma and Louise thing. It's just like when they're in the car at the golf club, they're working the buddy-buddy element of it all is just so glorious i loved it it's absolutely glorious i'm not sure it's quite cagney and lacy standards but there's so much tension there that kind of them looking through the binoculars at howard and cliff at the golf club yeah kim watching through the binoculars and and getting a piece of gum from her bag i love that i so love that and again this is coming down to the filmmaking I thought that was absolutely amazing. Um, and I also loved Jimmy being naked. Not because I liked seeing guys naked, just that I, I thought he was so desperate to make the plan work that that was the extreme that he was forced into. So the plan is effectively to plant some cocaine, in inverted commas, uh, it's basically talcum powder, I think, planting it in Howard's locker so that Cliff spots it. That's what they're trying to do is set up this belief in Cliff that Howard is a cocaine user. Plan has various, well, certain moments where you wonder whether or not this was intended. But Kevin Watchtel, can never pronounce his surname right, the Mesa Verde bank owner yep. Kim used to work for that's had a run-in with Jimmy in the past. Uh, he's there and he tells the membership director that Jimmy certainly shouldn't be allowed to become a member of this golf club. Jimmy plays the whole anti-Semitism card and makes a big scene and then asks if he can use the bathroom, points out the nearest one is in the men's locker room and gets to where he needs to go. And then he stuffs up the toilet using a load of toilet paper, uh, manages to find out which locker is Howard's. And then just as he's about to get to the locker, Kim spots them finishing their game early and heading back which is when Jimmy needs to disrobe and put a towel over his head to hide himself from Howard. And also the way that this all ties in, like they've got this major plan with Clinton and Nancy. The gentlemen's. Yes. Yeah, so this is phase two of the plan, isn't it? They've set up, the, they planted the idea in Cliff's head that maybe this coke 
in the dropped out of his locker was his and they need somebody to suggest that Howard has a coke problem to Cliff. It needs to be somebody with a case, a potential case, but not something that Cliff would want to take. And then again, setting it up brilliantly, Kim says she's got an idea that Jimmy is going to hate. And then we next see Jimmy at the Sweet Liberty Tax Services, which is a trailer out in the middle of nowhere with an inflatable Statue of Liberty. And we're reintroduced to Betsy and Craig. Now, do you remember the Kettleman's story? Yes. So he is a counsellor, I think. Or he's, he's, or he's got a notary or something. But anyway, he's been parceling off money for him and his wife to have this abs- this lifestyle they can't actually afford. Uh, they get busted. Saul tries to help them. Then they do a runner. But it turns out they haven't really done a runner. They've just gone camping a couple of miles out their back garden. And Saul walks in on them in their tent singing Bingo was his name-o. And manages to get them to give the money back. And the the husband does time, but it's like 18 months in a federal prison or something. So it's not hard time. There's a couple of key points that Saul offers to represent them and actually really works hard. Loads of different ways to try and get them to accept him as their lawyer. They go behind his back and go to HHM. Saul employs Mike to steal the money from their house. So the money they've embezzled. He employs Mike to steal their money and they call him a thief uh, in this episode. And then he returns the money to where it should have gone in the first place. And so to the, to the courts. Um, so he kind of forces their hand and, it, and Kim is involved in that case as well. All the way back in season one, the way that it all links in and ties back to it is just genius. So Saul's pitching to them exoneration, uh, an angle called justice is the angle that he's playing. He can get their old lives back if he signs with them. Whatever you do, don't sign with someone like Clifford Maine. Oh, lovely. Sign with me and I get this back. I'll point someone called someone a crookety crook, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It sounds like classic Nancy Kettleman, that. Yeah. And it was an absolute joy to see her fall again. What a bitch. The way this is going to work is that uh, they're basically going to claim that their lawyer, Howard Hamlin, was on cocaine and so they were unfairly represented during their trial and so they should be exonerated and go back to their old lifestyle. And they go and meet Cliff who explains, he's a thoroughly decent man, Cliff Main, explains very, very nicely that that's not going to work, it's not going to happen, no one's going to take their case and they will not get their, their money back or anything from it. But they do plant the seed of Howard living a life outside his life through cocaine. So... The plan works and this slow con that Jimmy and Kim are cooking up is definitely underway. Jimmy and Kim have um, won a blinder, to be honest. Clearly, it was so it shocked him so much, he couldn't even continue playing his guitar, probably <laughs> during billable hours. So that's how serious it is. Going back to the cinematography, I love the cut from a bespectacled cliff. We had the back of his head to a bespectacled Gus and the back of his head into the very next scene was just, again, a really lovely moment showing how everything is interconnected and tied together. We next see Jimmy and Kim at their apartment. This is when we see the time machine by the bedside. What is the significance of the time machine? Obviously, this is H.G. Wells' novel, where it popularised the idea of time travel. I did a little bit of a, a Wikipedia on the book. So it's a commentary on the increasing inequality and class divisions of Wells's era. 
which he projects as giving rise to two separate human species, the fair childlike Eloi and the savage simian Morlocks, distant descendants of the contemporary upper and lower classes respectively. It's believed that Wells's depiction of the Eloi as a race living in plentitude and abandon was inspired by the utopic romance novel News From Nowhere, though Wells's universe in the novel is notably more savage and brutal. I wonder when we talk about, uh, we talk about Kim again at the end, some, one of the lines that Kim says at the, at the end of this episode, she says, you think you've lost everything, you have no idea. And the idea of a Kim as a character who's come from nothing, who's very much been, you know, lower class origins. And then the kind of wealth and, you know, prestige that Saul Goodman attains. He opens a window into this world of wealth through his actions as, as Saul Goodman. Uh, similarly to the way that this guy in the, in the time machine opens windows to new worlds. I, I think that's interesting because Kim suggests enough carrot that needs to be more stick. And I think she's got quite a backbone. Kim has morals. She's she makes choices. I'm, I, I guess I'm questioning whether I would follow or not. Isn't there an episode called Bad Choice Road? I think that's an, another key one for Kim in season five. There's an episode called Bad Choice Road, and it's a it, she's definitely on the road of taking these darker decisions. Yeah, uh, just I think that's part of the reason why we're big fans of hers, that you never really know what she's going to do. That Bad Choice Road, Saul explicitly says that, I believe, whilst he's getting the oatmeal bath from Kim and explaining about what happened out in the desert and, and what can happen. And I think, yeah, even at that point, he's starting to say to Kim, like, you've got to be careful. What I do, I go into with my eyes open because I have a history of conning people. You don't. She'll do anything. And I think at the end, she says to him, you gave them the money, didn't you? It's clear that she just doesn't believe they should get anything. So there's there's that real hardness that she has. She's either like pro bono, got to make sure the little man's okay. And then there's that bit of her that's like, fuck you. I don't care. You're going to, I'm going to just fuck you up. So yeah, Jimmy's response to that, you gave them the money, didn't you, is to mutter wolves and sheep. Did anyone know what he's talking about here? Yeah, totally. So earlier on, I can't remember which scene it is. We have a flashback to someone coming in. So this is when Jimmy's a kid in their family shop and someone comes in basically trying to scam money out of them. His car's broken down or he needs 20 bucks to get some petrol. And his dad pays him the money. And Jimmy's like, oh, this is bollocks. I'm not so sure about this. And then I think Chuck might have said, don't pay him. And anyway, later on, I think Jimmy's outside the petrol store or the shop or he's in another part of the shop. And the guy that scammed money from him turns around and says to him, wolves and sheep, and explains that you're either a wolf or you're a sheep, right? Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that. I know we've already said it, but I think it bears repeating another round of applause, flowers or whatever, for that scene where Kim just goes complete badass, gets on the phone, how are the kids? Yeah, I need to speak to someone. I've got something very important. Completely calls their bluff, shows how she's connected. And just all of it from this tiniest gesture on her face, sitting in that chair, looking back at them. Ah, oh, 
brilliant. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. If she does not win an Emmy, <laughs> what is wrong with you? I just wanted to pick up really briefly on the fact that Saul mentions a couple of medical conditions when he's when they're talking about their different plans and all the rest of it. And just bearing in mind the medication that we saw in that residence, I don't know whether it's some sort of hypochondria or he just seems to have this incredible knowledge of these conditions, which which are used. Curious to see whether that kind of comes into play a little bit more in future episodes. So we can now talk about the twins. Yeah, so let's talk about what well, we're going to throw the twins in with Gus, Mike and Nacho and that whole storyline. So Nacho's on the run. Gus is unconvinced throughout that Lalo is dead. And the twins' entrance with their shoes, with their shadows, their silhouettes. I thought it was awesome. And we see them first at the at the Hacienda, as we said earlier, and then we see them later on as well. Mike, at the beginning of this, is very much pushing for them to help Nacho. Now, I watched the episode with subtitles, which is just something that I do these days. But it meant that I could see who was speaking to Nacho each time on the phone. And the first couple of times, it's Mike certainly according to the subtitles. And then after that, it becomes Tyrus. So I think the subtitles got it wrong. I think it's Tyrus for nearly all of them because Mike says explicitly that he's been ducking his calls. So maybe one of the early ones, but I'm pretty sure nearly all of them are Tyrus and they've got the subtitles got it wrong. There is one scene where he has a phone conversation and then it goes to us. I think it's our first sighting of Mike, which is where he's playing Marble Run with his granddaughter, which I thought was, again, really, really brilliant. He says some line like, build it too high and the marble will go off track. We get another example of toys or games being used as metaphors, but I thought this was a really, really good one. Keep things simple. Don't build it too high or things are going to go awry for you. I was sure that conversation was him, but actually I think you're right. We see his phone ring and him not answering it during that See. So I think one of the calls is Mike, where Nacho's in the ditch. So that first call, and then everything after that is Tyrus. And then there's that conversation where Mike says to Gus that they need to help him. And Gus says no. And then that's when Mike stops answering the phone to him, which we then see in that scene. Uh, yeah, you're right. The first time is Gus is sus suspicious that the mission's been a success. Mike is pushing for them to help Nacho. And he's, he doesn't say no, but he's non-committal about it. There was a real standoff there between Mike and Gus, which I really enjoyed as a viewer. Mike is very much of the belief that Nacho has been a good soldier, done what he needs to do. And his father, pretty key to it all, is that his father is an innocent and needs to be protected. And we also know how the relationship between Mike and Gus develops. So I thought that was a really important and interesting scene. Well, it's not often someone stands up to Gus, right, and gets away with it and has the ability to do so, which is why Mike doing that later on is so important. So Nacho arrives at this motel. This woman says nothing but hands him an envelope or a key, uh, and then he finds an envelope with, with cash, a gun and a phone. He gets suspicious that someone is in the shed over the way. 
before we get to that moment, at the beginning of episode two, the beginning of Carrot and Stick, we get Nacho's girlfriends, uh, one of which is uh, playing Domino Rally. So here's the other toy game that I promised as a metaphor. She's lining up these dominoes and she's getting really good at them. They're all kind of falling into place and falling just as they should do. Mike sends the girlfriends away using both the carrot and the stick. Here's some money, go and have a new life. And if you don't, and I can't, I can't promise what will happen to you. And then we have the switching out of the safe. They open up the safe. Mike finds Nacho's dad's ID card, as well as Nacho's uh, fake ID card. They switch out the safe, put the money back in, and only one of the ID cards, which we later find out is Nacho's, and an envelope. I think it's interesting, and I need you to help me following this through, but Mike places this envelope into the safe. We later see Balsa opening that safe and finding the envelope with details of a money transfer and a phone number to the motel Ocotillo, which is where Nacho is hiding out. And that's how the twins know where to find him and how we then end up in this big shootout. So it's either Mike who's put that envelope in there on Gus's instruction or of his own volition, right? I think it's on Gus's instruction. So just because the way he does it, so him taking the ID for his dad is something that's done impulsively in the moment. And that seems to be something that he's chosen to do. But putting the envelope in the safe seemed very much like he was carrying out an order he was given. The thing that I held on to was the, the twins. It was really important that Joe was found alive and was kept alive. So I think that was a big part of the plan is to make sure that he could be I guess retained as a witness. I, I agree that was a really interesting point. What backs up I guess what Damien's saying about it being Gus's plan the guy in the shed works for Gus. He speaks on the phone to Tyrant yeah. as well right so we know that the guy watching Nacho works for Gus. Gus had set it up so that the twins would find Nacho did he think that they would kill Nacho? Because the twins work for the Salamancas, right? But we find out that the twins want him alive. Yes, it's, it's 4D chess from Gus, right? So he has that information. So it looks like Nacho has been squirreling money away to wherever it was, Panama or the Cayman Island. Panama, wasn't it? So it seems like they've managed to stumble on it. And not Bolsonaro, what's he called? Bolsa. Bolsa, yeah. <laughs> Bolsa thinks he's been really smart by ringing the number and finding it. And at no point does he think, oh, wait a second, why have I suddenly got this very important information? Like, why would he leave a phone number for a place he was running to in his safe? Seems a bit strange. So I think it's that, really. He's setting it all up. And then I don't think that necessarily Gus thinks that they'll want to keep him alive because at that point he doesn't know that Lalo's still alive, does he? So he thinks it's going to be a straight-up execution and then everything's squared away. Yeah, well, the sequence goes... He, I mean, Gus is always suspicious that Lelo's still alive. They break open the safe, do the safe switch. Gus visits Hector, and the handshake that Gus gets from Hector tells him that Lalo is still alive. And then Balsa, the very next scene is Balsa cracking the safe open and finding the money. But they've already planted that envelope. So, yeah, it's really, really confusing, this bit, but I'm hoping we can get closer to it. Anyway, to, just to wrap this up, Gus wants to bring Nacho's father in as insurance. Mike says, no, you're not going to involve him. Then we get the big standoff. Tyrus pulls a gun on him and we get the line, whatever happens next, it's not going to go down the way you think it is. Mike gets a phone call from Nacho 
and he wants to talk to Gus. I definitely think Gus is trying to help Nacho. That's my call. Fair enough. I think that there's always been a, a layer of separation between Gus and Nacho, right? And it's, and it's usually been Mike or somebody else. So the fact that Nacho wants to speak now directly to Gus is what's going to be interesting in the next episode. I just don't like Nacho's chances because Gus has been willing to just bin him off any opportunity he's got. I'd say I definitely sit the other side of the fence from you, Neil. I think Gus is playing a, a smart game and he does not care about whether Nacho makes it. The only the only reason why I will speak to him now is because Lalo's alive and Nacho implicates him in trying to assassinate Lalo. That's the only reason why I think Gus is now suddenly interested in keeping him alive and getting him out of there. One final thing that I wanted to bring up from the episodes was the scene with Jimmy and the police and the prosecutors of the de Guzman storyline. Um, they've obviously worked out that that's a lie, that the Guzman family don't exist anywhere. And Jimmy's handling it really, really brilliantly, the whole career-ending prosecutorial misconduct. And then he lets Lalo's name slip out. As Will Smith would say, keep my client's name out your mouth. <laughs> I listened to the um, Adam Buxton podcast, and he's just started a new season, and he talks quite often about Moab. Moab. So, yeah, he did a whole thing about keep my wife's name. <laughs> I could hardly recommend that too. After you've listened to TV DNA, listen to the Adam Buxton podcast. Any other final things you want to say about Better Call Saul? We really have to wait so long for the next episode. It seems unfair. Well, we're going to be doing a deep, deep dive. And I think you can probably tell we're going to have a lot to say about every single episode of the final season of Better Call Saul. So if you want to join us for that, then please do. Um, have you been watching anything else, chaps? So I started watching season two of Russian Doll. We talked about that last episode. Interesting. I don't really want to give anything away. Um, but the premise is slightly different to the premise of the first season. Uh, and I'm still trying to work out whether I like it or not. Three episodes in. I finished the first season. I, I think last time I recorded it, I, was, I just started that season, but I finished it. Thoroughly enjoyed the fact that there was a fish called Boba Fett in it. And the whole premise, the themes of video games and getting to the next level, the, the meaning of life. It was a really, really great, I thought, season. You know, the time loop thing is something that's been done and done before. But Natasha Leone plays that New York Jewish comedy just so brilliantly. And I thought it was a really clever show. So I'm, I'm excited to get stuck into Russian Doll season two. Yeah, it's a slightly different vibe. So it's still playing with the idea of time in a non-linear uh, manner. But it's good. I, I think I still need a bit more time with this series to decide whether I like it or not. I finally watched No Time to Die, the latest Bond film, which, yeah, I don't know why I still watch them, to be honest. They're just, I just get more and more disappointed by them. I think Daniel Craig was fantastic in Casino Royale and it's just been diminishing returns ever since. I think it's fair that we can reveal spoilers. So what did you think of the ending? I mean, that was already sport for me anyway by someone else. Yeah, I, th I mean, yeah, why not? It makes sense. Bond dies. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, he, so so where where's that going to leave um, the franchise? Well, there'll just be a new Bond, right? What, what happens when Spider-Man dies? You just, so. you just bring it yeah. back around, I guess. I just think, yeah, I had far bigger problems with the story than him dying. I thought that was actually fair <laughs> enough. The actual Remy Malik was criminally underused as a very yeah. blah baddie. He's a fantastic actor. Uh, and he was just kind of like chucked in a couple of times. Everything was a bit dubious, to be honest. But that is the way of Bond. It ticks the boxes for the fans and that's all that matters. I have watched other stuff, but 
I've been up since four o'clock this morning, so I can't really remember anything, I'm afraid. Uh, so more and on in the next episode. So I was off sick recently and managed to get a bit of time to watch a lot of a lot of TV. I have nearly finished watching Dirty Lines, which we previewed a, a while back. This is a Netflix show. Uh, we're in 1987 Amsterdam at the top of the show. It's a time of Walkmans, Lolo Balls, exciting new CD players, and dancing as though you're not enjoying yourself. Prudish Marley has a go at recording for the first ever phone sex line. She's pretty hopeless, but happens to be in the studio when a news crew passes through, much to the disappointment of her parents. There's a Fleabag-esque breaking of the fourth wall throughout this show. It's full of comedic nostalgia and pure filth. Perfect Netflix and chill fodder. And as with most stories about sex, it's about repression and finding yourself. Uh, so yeah, if you're prepared to do the, the subtitled reading, I just love the, listening to people talking Dutch. Quite often, it sounds very similar to English. I bet it was pretty lecker. So just remind me, wh- when is it set? 1987. 87. What was, what was, what was 1987 like, lads? I don't really know. I know you guys were probably in your 20s then. So what, what was that like? Well, I know I was 11 years old at that point. But in 1988, of course, Holland won the Euros, didn't they? So it kind of Spoiler that, that features, yeah, features as part of, the, part of the show. But yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Dirty Lines. I've got one more episode to, to finish. I also watched the entirety of Anatomy of a Scandal. I'm really conflicted about this. I'd love for somebody else to watch this to help me work out how I feel about it. I will say Sienna Miller, I thought, was excellent. The mask that she wears, uh, she plays a politician's wife, you know, high, high-ranking Tory MP's wife, in the public eye, increasingly in the public eye as the show goes on. And I think she wears a really, really great character mask and, and, and the moments she lets that slip and lets us see it behind that mask are really, really great. So I watched the first 15 minutes of this and switched it off. Uh, I thought uh, Rupert was decent. I guess that like you said, if it's if it's that she's got this mask that then lets slip, uh, there just wasn't enough going on in Sienna's performance to grip me. I think I'm just a bit over shows based around affairs, to be honest. Yeah, I, w- I was pretty, uh, like by the end of it, I. I really hated Rupert Friend as a as a person, not just the character that he played. Um, but I think Sienna Miller and Michelle Dockery do a really, really good job of this. There are twists and turns within the story that kept me going, uh, but some of it was a little bit on the nose or a little bit laboured. Sometimes it's horrendously posh. Emily started biting her cuticles again, so I'm taking the kids out of school to see your parents. Basically everything that's horrible about politics was kind of laid bare in this and it just, yeah was not not particularly pleasurable to watch in in those circumstances what i am really loving though is the raw feminist anthology on apple tv as ever with apple this is really really beautifully made they're one-off episodes one-off stories black mirror-esque both in that and also in the way that they are taking sort of speculative fiction or an unrealistic idea. They're kind of fables in a way. They're twists to traditional stories around things like recognition and memory. We get postnatal guilt in one episode really effectively. Highly enjoyable, complex, thought-provoking tales. Merritt Weaver is in the one that I've just started from Walking Dead fame. She was Dr. Denise in The Walking Dead. Oh, really? Yeah. So she's, yeah. And she's in an episode 
where ducks talk to her, which is just fantastic. Is she <laughs> the one that was the partner of the other doctor? She was Tara's girlfriend. That's it. Something else that I finished was The Dropout. This is on Disney+. Plus. Uh, incredible story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. I mean, the epic scale of this is just astonishing. Really, really similar to Dopesick in a lot of ways. We're kept distanced from the victims of the fraudulent test results, which included things like incorrect diagnosis of HIV, cancer, and a miscarriage. I mean, these things were just huge. The impact of what they did was incredible. And unlike with Dopesick, where we really see everything, it's almost like a 360 view of the scanner with Dopesick. With this, it very much focuses on those employees who tried to do the right thing and how Holmes persecuted them and also her inability to see that what she was doing was wrong. But this was technology that never, ever worked. And she got a huge, like £7.3 million worth of investment from people like Rupert Murdoch, from all sorts of different people. She had Kissinger on her board. It was just insane what she was able to achieve with a product that never, ever worked. The Dropout is incredible. Big shout out to Alan Ruck, who essentially plays Connor from Succession as a Walgreens employee. But so many great cameos and appearances in it. I've talked about Stephen Fry being in it before, who is great. The cast is phenomenal and it's really you know, there's a lot of different actors involved because it tells a story over such a long period of time. Ultimately, the dropout, whilst it's a, a little bit slow in the middle, is a recommendation from me. So yeah, those are the four main ones that I've been watching. I've been keeping up with Pachinka. I got it wrong last time round. It's not five episodes, it's eight in total. Um, they're coming out weekly. I'm up to date now, really just loving it. I don't know if you saw in episode four, Damien, but the sequence of um, a character getting on a boat and just the music in that is incredible. Really sort of uplifting, almost hopeful music as you see this huge boat and then it becomes so much more nightmarish as the character kind of descends the steps into, into the vessel. It's really clever storytelling, just the parallels and the juxtapositions across these timelines, I think are fantastic. So Pachinko is still very much a strong recommendation from me. And Top Boy Demo, I finished season two, which was the final Channel 4 season and thoroughly enjoyed seeing Paul Anderson, uh, Michaela Cole, all really, really great. One of the shocking, or I guess not shocking, but more chilling things about watching season two of Top Boy was how many of the younger characters had changed from one season to another. And it's probably partly to do with casting. But in uh, actually... You know, given what I've seen in season three of which character, which actors they brought back, you know, these these kids either, you know, didn't survive. They probably would have ended up somewhere else for various different reasons. And, you know, at the end of season two of Top Boys, and a huge spoiler, obviously, because it's been out for 11, 12 years now. But it's just incredibly gut-punching moment at the end when a young character is brutally, brutally killed. And obviously the impact of that affects... To Shane, the main character in the show, so season three opens with him very much in a different place, geographically as well as emotionally. I'm about three episodes into season 
three or season one of Top Boy, however you want to look at it. Uh, the first Netflix season, I'm about three episodes in. But enjoying that and enjoying, you know, I've just, you know, seeing those characters like Jace and Jem, the, the sort of time difference and how they've grown. Uh, not necessarily in positive ways. So yeah, it's uh, like it's, it's incredible stuff and really impactful, I think. And so I'm very grateful to both you and Grace for recommending Top Boy as a show for me to watch. And I'm hoping to get caught up with that. You finished the, this current season now? Yeah, I did a couple of weeks ago. It's just really good. Stuff happens. I, I can't really say anything. E- even even just to mention these characters is just a massive spoiler season three it's just so good and it's a it's a part of london that very rarely gets seen outside of the uk in tv dramas because most of the time people think it's just everyone drinking tea and eating fish and chips of the queen so it's nice to see a different part of london be represented in an authentic way yeah and grace made comparisons with the wire when we last spoke with her when she recommended it and i think those are they're absolutely fair it is like gripping stuff the final thing that i wanted to chat about partly because in news season two of slow horses it transpires has already been shot so we are only i think four episodes into slow horses on apple tv but they've revealed that season two is in the can it's already been shot we will definitely be having one and multiple seasons have been planned did you know that and how do you feel about it uh, well, in, interesting. So I read that season one was split into two because Slow Horses is a book, right? So uh, so is it the first half of the first series is is the book Slow Horses and the second half is the second book? I don't know, not led by donkeys, but it's something like that. Well, yeah, grand. If they can maybe make some changes to part of the cast, I'll, I'll definitely be fully on board. But he's, I mean, Gary's brilliant in it. And so many other great performances. I'm, I think I'm up to date with what's out, and and really enjoying it. So, as long as it stays good, yeah, bring it on. There were three shows that dropped today. We've already talked about Russian Doll. Uh, Inside Number Nine comes back on the BBC iPlayer and BBC Two. They're restarting with uh, League of Gentlemen reunion episodes. So Mark Gattis. Is joining regulars Miss Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton in the first episode, which also stars Diane Morgan from Motherland. Other guest stars in this season include Sophie Okonedo, Daniel Mays from The Line of Duty, and Annette Badland, who is the landlady in Ted Lasso. Now, I have still, Inside Number Nine's been on my watch list for some time. I've still never seen a single episode. So I'm going to try and pick some of those up over the next week or so and then dive back into the back catalogue the other show brooklyn 99 final season finally comes to e4 today i know demo you've already picked that one up i had to get on the vpn couldn't wait uh we mentioned before chivalry that comes out tomorrow it's a steve coogan and sarah soleimani show i'm looking forward to that there's a show coming out on stars play on the 24th of april called gaslit which stars julia roberts sean penn and dan stevens it's about the watergate scandal that might be worth a watch if you have the stars play. We've also mentioned before 10%. That's coming out on the 28th of April. And the final, final seven episodes of The Ozark on the 29th of April. Very much looking forward to seeing how that story ends. 
Very exciting. Well, that's a whole load of fantastic shows you've, you've mentioned, Adam. If we've missed any shows that you're really excited about, they're going to drop soon. Please make sure you hit us up on the socials at TV DNA Pod on Twitter and Instagram. You can put TV Space DNA in the Facebook search bar. Or just put TV DNA in, in your Google, your Firefox, whatever you use. You can even ask Jeeves and he will tell you where to go to find us. Just put TV DNA in your search bar. We'd love to hear from you. So that's it from us this week. We'll be back next week to talk about medical assault. Season 6, episode 3. Many thanks to you, Neil. So good, man. And Damo. Cheerio! Bye. Why not? I mean, Adam, I need to be aware, wary of spoilers. No, you couldn't give a shit. Fine.